You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Well, good morning again. Welcome to Faith Presbyterian Church. We've been looking at Luke's Gospel, and we're going to switch gears beginning this Sunday. And then over the next four Sundays, we will be talking about marriage and singleness in the service of God. Uh, This is a part of a sermon series that I had outlined a long time ago and uh, just uh, hadn't fitted into the schedule. And after the uh, temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, Luke is going to begin uh, articulating the public ministry of Jesus. And I thought that this would be a, a good break to insert Uh, five-week series having to do with marriage and singleness. So that's what we're beginning uh, this morning. We'll be talking about the framework of marriage, that marriage is a gift of God for the purpose of serving Him, marriage in the service of God. Uh, Little theologians, uh, I don't want you, if you don't mind, to draw a picture of your mom. Um, I just suspect I'm going to get mom pictures, and maybe you can draw mom pictures when you go home. Uh, What I'd like for you to do for me is I'd like for you to draw a picture of a husband and a wife working in a field. A husband and a wife working in a field. Now, mom mom can be in this picture, but it's mom and dad working together. Because Adam and Eve were told to work and keep the garden. And marriage was a means by which they were to engage in that task, to serve God. Marriage is to serve God. And so that's, uh, that's, I mean, if you give me a picture of your mom, that's okay. But um, a, a husband and a wife working in a field, husband and wife farmers. Well, let's, uh, let's have you open your Bibles. How about that? How about Genesis uh, chapter 1? We're going to look at two lengthy passages, and I'm just going to read them uh, back to back. Genesis 1, uh, beginning at verse 26. We'll start with 26 to 31, and then we'll jump to 2.15. But I'll, I'll, uh, I'll mention the, the jump in the passage. Let's, uh, let's pray to God first, and then begin at Genesis 1.26. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Humble me that I might proclaim that, Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. So beginning in Genesis chapter 1 at verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. 
And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Now skip down to Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the reading of our Lord. Well, why this topic? Why am I interested in speaking on marriage and singleness? And I have, I have three ways to uh, answer that question. Um, I think probably this, the, second, uh, the second rationale is the best, but let me start here. Uh, part of it is, is that we're a church with a lot of young marriages and a lot of single people. We're a church with a lot of young marriages and a lot of single people. It's, it's, just, uh, it's just the nature of our church. And so uh, there is this experiential sense that this is where we are as a congregation. And uh, my desire is to pay attention as your shepherd and to care for you as a shepherd. And so uh, I, I want to be able to, to speak to you where you are in life. Now, that's not the deciding feature. This really is. And that is that the Bible has much to say say about marriage, and the Bible actually has much to say about singleness. You might not believe me. And if the Bible has a lot to say about this, then I certainly, I, I want to bring this to our attention, to preach the whole counsel of Scripture. And so those are the first two reasons, really. It, it's, a, it's a means of pastoring you where you are in life. And the second is that there are a lot of scriptures that, that bear on you in this way and bear on me as well. Uh, and then there's, a, there's a, a third reason, and I have to insist to you that it really is the third reason. Um, in our nation in particular, but not just our nation, uh, it would seem that the courts are in the process of redefining what we actually are taught in scripture about marriage. 
Um, it would seem as though there uh, are decision-making powers in court right now, and we should get uh, results sometime next month, uh, that, uh, that there's a process of redefining what marriage is. And so uh, the state had at one time uh, codified laws describing something that was already there, the institution of marriage, and it seems as though we're turning a page uh, culturally and that the uh, lawmakers in our land are no longer asserting that which was already there, but actually going backwards and redefining what they had initially uh, asserted. And so that presents a, uh, a potentially a very painful situation for Christians. And so I, I know that that's here. It's more than just in the background, but, but all three of those reasons play into why uh, we're talking about marriage and singleness. And uh, what, I, what I want us to do right now, just for this morning, is I want us to think about marriage in the service of God. Marriage in the service of God. And we're going to go backwards and look at Genesis 1 and 2 and begin to build a notion of the framework or perhaps even the origins of marriage. What exactly is marriage? Jesus and Paul both go to Genesis 2 looking for answers regarding how marriage ought to be dealt with in their own, in their own age. First century men looking back to Genesis 2 to discern what exactly marriage is. And we're going to look at, uh, at two of these uh, scriptures to discern the, the origin or the framework of marriage. And I just want you to hear me say that uh, what, what we, what we uh, get in Genesis 1 and 2 is that marriage exists for the service of God. It exists for His service. And I'll, I'll say this more pointedly later, but marriage doesn't exist for the service of those who are married. It just doesn't. It exists for God's purpose, for, for God's glory. And it's so hard for us to think that something so personal, right? What are your big decisions in life? Buying a house, buying a car, and selecting your mate. Right? These are all real personal things. And surely the Bible has nothing to say about what kind of car I buy or what kind of house I buy and certainly not what kind of person I find happiness with. And yet, that's not the issue, is it? God actually has a profound opinion about marriage because marriage exists not for your happiness, not for your purposes, but for God. That's what we want to look at uh, this morning. And I want to begin by just taking us into Genesis 1 and 2 and seeing that Christians uh, believe in a God of, uh, of personality, a, a God who is a, a person, you know, when we speak about marriage, oftentimes we think about marriage, even as Christians, we'll think about marriage as a philosophical uh, disposition or an idea or a notion. And we don't often, uh, uh, in public, when we're speaking to someone who is very offended by what we believe, we don't often go back and say marriage is founded on a person, a person of the Trinity, the first person of the Trinity, God, speaking creation into existence. That's very important for uh, what we believe about marriage because marriage is established by a person. It's not just a feeling. It's not ethereal. It's actually visceral. One theologian says that the problem with the doctrine of marriage is that God is just too real. God is just too real. 
God doesn't exist just to give me philosophical or emotional fulfillment. God actually says things that don't fulfill me at all. They're actually offensive to me. Like I can't work my way to Him. I can't stand before Him on my own two feet. That I must be helped by someone else. Uh, this God is a person. He speaks independently of us and He says some things to us that are very hard to hear. And yet that is where marriage comes from. It comes from a person. A person in these passages who actually speaks. God said, God said, God said. He's this personality. He's, he's not a, a mysterious force of vapor that I can move my hand through the vapor and change its shape. He's a person and I can't move my hand through him because he commands he commands. He tells His created work how it ought to function. And the God who speaks is the God who has opinions. Uh, this uh, passage tells us that, and God blessed them. That God, that God is over and over again uh, providing an analysis of that which He has spoken into existence with His words. That which He has commanded. And that analysis is this is good. This is good. This is good. This is very good. And we've read also that this is not good. That God actually has an opinion. He's a person who speaks. He's a person who has opinions. He's a person who gives he gives. Where does the breath of life come from? It is God giving breath to that which He has created that it would be animated and have life. It has no life without the breath of God until He gives it that breath. And His, uh, His animated creatures have no life unless they're fed. And we, we read that God is a feeder. He, he gives them food. I've referenced this book before called Delighting in the Trinity. I can't recommend it enough, but Michael Reeves, the author, says this is a notion about God that American evangelicals, and he's British, he's speaking about British evangelicals as well, but he singles out American evangelicals and he says uh, that American evangelicals have a hard time believing that God has this direction outward. That God actually uh, comes to us, lunges at us. Too often we think of God as just waiting up in space for me to make a decision about Him. But Genesis 1 and 2 describe a God who is a person who gives His direction is to creation, that creation would have breath and would have food for living. He's a giving God engaging, interacting with, speaking. He has opinions. He gives and He plans. Look what He says in 126. Let us, let us. Everything that God is doing in Genesis 1 and 2 is according to a plan, an objective. That's why we run into words like be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, dominate, work, keep. God has a plan in creation. It's not a fanciful environment that He creates and puts a glass bell jar over the top that we might set it on, its win on a windowsill and observe. God from the very beginning, speaking it, having opinions about it, a giving to it that it might be sustained, He has a plan. And this is why Michael Horton would say the problem with God is that He's too real. He's too real. 
He understands my struggles better than I understand them. And so I can go to places in the Bible where believers like me are struggling under immense anxiety and worry. God's too real. He saves people riddled with anxiety. He saves people that are depressed. There is no sin that God is afraid of. He enters into the arena of our own sin and filth that He might draw us to Jesus Christ. There are people here this morning that have stories of conversion like that. He came to me in my filth to save me. That's the problem. He's too real. So real that He comes to us in flesh and He stands on dirt that we stand on. He enters into our world. He has our nature. Not a special third nature. He has our nature. That's the problem with God. He's too real. And Jesus will come again. And when He comes again, that will be the great problem for those who refuse to profess faith in Jesus Christ. Because He'll come in a physical manner. He'll make noise and the entire world will notice. And everyone will look at Him and they'll be offended because He's too real. That is too real. And the real Jesus comes to them. And His glory overcomes them. And as one uh, pastor friend of mine says, the cartilage in their knees melts so that they fall on their faces before Him. He's too real. That's the character of God in creation. And that's where marriage comes from. It's, it's the character of God actually speaking into creation, having opinions, giving, having a purpose, and actually equipping mankind for, that He might be able to serve God and all that he thinks, says, and does. You see, when we think about creation, I, I imagine many of you are like me, that it's very easy to just kind of fashion in your mind this Garden of Eden as this uh, wonderful, perfect environment. Um, and, it, and it has kind of this Hollywood theatrical feel. And we begin to think, boy, if, I could go, if we could go back to that time where I could walk in that creation, wouldn't my life be happy? And almost always that happy life is about walking in the woods and doing whatever I please. Isn't that funny? If I could go back into that creation, oh, that would be so great. What would I do? I would study pine cones. I would study newts. That's what I would do. I'd walk around. It's God's garden. How interesting it is that man would be given a task of naming, but the garden of his own habitat already has a name. It's God's garden. You're there for me. You're not there for yourself for your intellectual studies of the world of biology, you're there for me. It is my garden. The image would have made great sense because a king would always have a special garden. That's what the hanging gardens of Babylon are. They're the doorway into the king's special garden. The people can walk hither and yon underneath this garden, but it was the doorway to the king's special garden. That's the, the exactitude of the king's rule is that he has this special garden. It belongs just to him. It is his special place. And in that place, the king makes all of the decisions. He's the one who enters that garden. It is not a public garden. It's his. Everything in that garden needs to be suited to his taste. And how interesting that God would place Adam and Eve in his kingly garden. 
And Adam and Eve are there to serve him. To serve him. I love in Ezekiel 28, where Ezekiel says, the Garden of Eden is the Garden of God. The Garden of Eden is the Garden of God. Eden shows up in Ezekiel 28. It's His garden. And that is the context for understanding what marriage is. Because in Genesis 2.15, man is told to guard and to keep. To work and to keep. Doctoral dissertations are done on Genesis 2.15 to ascertain what is meant by that phrase, work and keep. Because the word for work can also be translated as serve. As serve. Adam and Eve are in this garden that they might serve God. And to keep can be understood as guarding, almost as if there's a hint that something could go wrong. And your job is also to guard the garden, not for your own glory, but for my glory in heaven. It is my garden. And that's the context for understanding what it means to be married. But there's another context as well. It's God's garden. We exist to serve Him. But also in creation, God gives uh, 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 human beings this, these uh, uh, special features. That there's something unique about being a human creature of God. That this human creature is called to work, to serve, and to keep. But this human creature is given a special identity. And the identity is the very image and the likeness of the one who owns the garden. The one the man is called to serve is the one who has marked his own identity. He owns the man's identity. He owns the man's job description. And the man is given this identity. This man is given this, this great privilege that he is to uh, make others who do exactly the same thing that keep this garden. And so he is to multiply. Uh, he is to fill the earth with people just like him. The kind of people that serve the purposes of God. And God makes man dependent upon Him alone. That there would only be one who could receive praise, and that is God. If you look at Psalm chapter or Psalm, uh, Psalm 8, the psalmist talks about creation in terms of the, the amphitheater for the praise of God. The amphitheater of the praise of God. That's what's supposed to be happening because that's the identity that was given to man. It's part of being human. It's, it's so ironic that modern debates about sexuality have to do with a person's identity. And yet we read in Genesis 1 and 2 that man's identity comes from God. And he is the only one who can assert what to do with that identity. How fascinating that this issue, that seems like it's only an issue of personal taste, goes right to, right to the bedrock of the character of God and creation. It's almost like the debate is no longer just a small issue of opinions. The debate is, has gone nuclear all of a sudden. And now it's the identity of man that is being staged as the most important thing to fight for. And yet man has no identity unless it is given to him by God. That is what it means to be human. 
So man is created and he's placed in this garden. The garden is not his. All of his working, all of his guarding and keeping are to serve the glory of the one who owns the garden. That's what he's there for. God gives this man unique privileges, making him in his own image, uh, marking his identity in such a way that man uh, carries with him the mark of God, uh, giving a man uh, a privilege to participate in the seed of the future that will be other men like him. And man is given this great dependence upon God so that he would sing God's praises and never his praises, never the praises of his wife, and never the praises of creation, but the praises of God. Do you see what God has done in this garden? God has made man and he's placed him in this garden. And, and God has actually uh, forged a special relationship with a man. Everything important about the man is actually found in God. That the maker of the man would mark everything that the man thinks and does. That God would be worshipped. That God would be served. Now verse 18 shows up and it's striking because God for the first time says that there's something that's not good. And He says it's not good that man should be alone. And we make a remarkable mistake by reading this passage and saying, Aha! It's not good that I should be alone. It's good that I have some deep personal need fulfilled. And because God knows that I have that personal need, He fulfills that personal need in a woman. Unless I'm married, I'll always be alone. That is such terrible theology. The entire context of Genesis 2 is that everything that we have, all of our work, everything about us is to serve God. Why then would we think that God has given me this other person that this person might serve me? That my deepest needs might be met in this person? It doesn't fit the context of the passage. The other person is given not as a companion. There's a Hebrew word that would be great for uh, Genesis uh, 2.18. So 2.18 is 2.24, isn't it? But the word's not companion. Look what it says. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Who is that person? That person is described as a helper. It is verse 18. It's a helper. It's not a companion. Why would man need a helper? Man needs a helper because he's there to serve God. The purpose of marriage is that God would be served. And Jesus and Paul, they go to Genesis 2.24 as a shedding light on what exactly marriage is. And both Jesus and Paul understand that marriage isn't all about the personal satisfaction of one individual. Marriage is about service that is offered to God. That's the purpose of marriage. And that's why Adam and Eve are not ashamed. It's not that they're not ashamed because uh, they have each other. It's, it's not as much a picture of marriage as it is a picture of God's glory. They're not ashamed because they know who they're about. They're about God. I wonder if in Romans 1, 16 and 17, when Paul admits that he's not ashamed of the gospel, is if he's thinking along the same lines. It's not that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I intellectually understand it and I can articulate it more clearly than all of my friends. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because this is God's plan. This is God's authority. This is what He does. And they're not ashamed as husband and wife because they know who they serve. They're not ashamed because they know the purpose of their life. 
Now, if it's not physical pleasure, physical delight, that man is given a wife, what is it? What is it? I mean, I, I of course, do weddings, and um, I know that uh, I read uh, worship, uh, worship guides on how to conduct weddings. If you look at Genesis uh, 2, 23, that phrase, this at last, almost always is spoken in such a way that this at last, my, I have been longing for a woman, and this at last is the woman that God has given to me. It has nothing to do with satisfying that man's personal desires. This at last is actually a praise to God. It's a praise to God. This at last, a helper that God would be further glorified. It's very different. So if, if uh, this companion, or if this helper is not going to be a companion, why? Why are there two of them together? And Tim Keller looks at this passage and he says, look, we are made to serve God together. There's no such thing as the rogue servant of God. God has made for Himself a plurality of people to serve Him. We are made to come together, and Tim Keller says, in supernatural friendships that God might be served in the fellowship of the church among Christians. God doesn't want us to serve Him individually. God wants us to put our arms around our brothers and sisters in the life of the church and serve Him together as a body. This is His mission for the world. A body of believers who serve as ambassadors of Jesus that the, that the world might see that her own communities pale in comparison to the community of the church. That her own friendships pale in comparison to these friendships. That their friendships are more based on everyone gr- uh, gratifying each other's desires, but in the church, these people can actually consider everyone else more significant than them. And they can make their life's purpose to glorify God by lifting up their brothers and their sisters. And Keller, I think, is seeing something very important because in this passage, we tend to, to make God's plan all about my, uh, my personal romantic relationship with my wife. But Keller says God wants a body of people to serve him together. And he says that's what's really being taught here. And then he goes from there to say that uh, husbands and wives must first and foremost be friendships before God, united to serve God. That's the priority in marriage. It's a kind of friendship that they witness in the church and that as friends that they might serve God, give him more glory. Well, the necessity or presence of Jesus, here's where I want to finish. Look, serving God, I want us all to hear, is actually an impossible mandate to fulfill. Serving God is an impossible mandate to fulfill. We read ahead in Genesis chapter 3 and we just see brokenness and mayhem. And we realize that it is impossible to serve this God. I'm polluted with sin. And it's not simply a matter of marriage being broken. Humanity is broken. Every friendship from this point out is broken. Every plurality of the people of God is a plurality of sin and brokenness. It's impossible to deliver this mandate. You know, the message for those of you who are single uh, is this, is that it's foolish to think that I can serve God only if I'm married, or I long to be married that I might serve God. That's just foolishness, because being married doesn't guarantee service to God. It's impossible to serve God. We're all fallen and we're all broken. Marriage may not even be a shortcut for you to serve God. 
And the message for uh, those of us who are married is uh, that desire to have the perfect marriage is just foolishness. It's just foolishness. The great weakness of our, marriage, our marriages is that husbands and wives don't know how to confess their sin to one another. That's the great weakness of our marriages. Because we think that our marriages have to be perfect, and if I can't make it perfect, then I'm going to broadcast uh, my marriage in such a way that it looks perfect. But serving God is impossible. It's absolutely impossible. What is this telling us? Well, it's telling us that uh, there is such a thing as singleness. There is such a thing as uh, a married life. But there's no such, a, no such thing as a Christian who is not married. And here's what I mean by that. The service uh, that we have before God is actually a service of Jesus to us. Because when Jesus comes to us, and we'll look at this next week, uh, He calls us His bride. He calls us His bride. So if you're single and you desire to be married so that you'll finally be able to serve God, you're already married. You're, the problem's deeper than that. You're already married. And your need is to come closer to Christ Jesus in sanctification. And the message for those of you who are married, if, if uh, your spiritual life together is not directed towards God as a married couple, that marriage is in great danger. Because you are married that you might be able to serve this God. And if this God doesn't enter into your conversations around the table, if this God is in the front and center of your parenting, uh, if, this, if this God isn't held up as you confess your sins in Christ to one another, uh, you're, in just, you're just in terrible danger. Because that's what marriage is for. It's to serve God. But the only way we're going to be able to do this is to come to God in faith in Christ Jesus. And Jesus looks at you and he calls you his bride. And he's the perfect husband. He's the perfect husband. And, and because he sacrifices himself that he might come to you and be the one perfect husband, then married couples, you actually know, what, you know how to live life as a couple. Husbands are to sacrifice before their wives to beautify them so that the church on earth would look beautiful. And single people in Christ Jesus, they also understand how to look at their singleness because now they're not pining and, and uh, anxiously longing for a wife. They know that they are a wife to Jesus, that they already have the companion that pushes away all loneliness. And so we're called in this great endeavor to serve God, but at the same time that service is made impossible in Genesis chapter 3. And Jesus comes. Jesus comes. And He takes us as His bride. And He teaches married people how to be. And He teaches single people how to be. He's the one who restores us. So the marriage that uh, Adam and Eve are presented with is a marriage that serves the purposes of God. And if you want to know what the purposes of God are, they're His Son who comes to save you and draw you to Himself, married or single. And so we're looking at the framework of marriage. Next week we're going to look at Ephesians 5. We're going to look at what exactly is the purpose of my marriage if this framework is true. What's the purpose of my marriage if this framework is true? So that's where we'll go next week looking at Ephesians 5. Uh, let, me, uh, let me stop us, pray for the Lord's table, and uh, then we'll all come to the table and partake. Let's pray together. Father, we do uh, thank You for coming to us in Christ Jesus. Jesus, we thank You. We thank You for showing us what service to Your Father looks like. Taking upon Yourself an undeserving bride. It's in Your name that we come. 
Amen.